This is episode 253 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to over 100 additional Shakespeare history interviews from our entire back catalog when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. Hi, I'm Jonathan Willis, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Birmingham. Another great message for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Walsingham knew about him because he was instantly famous in London when he returned. They got back to London around about the 1st of January of 1590, having been saved by some French sailors and taken back to France and then made their way back to England. And they were instant celebrities. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In 1567, a young English sailor named David Ingram signed up to work on a ship captained by English privateer John Hawkins. They would travel up and down the coasts of Africa and Mexico, raiding and trading goods. In November of 1567, Ingram found himself and close to 100 of his fellow crewmates stranded off the coast of Mexico in a city called Tampico, just south of the present-day Texas-Mexico border. Seeking to avoid capture by the Spanish, Ingram and close to two dozen of his shipmates started walking north. By October of 1568, a French fishing vessel picked up Ingram and just two of his original party of travelers off the coast of Nova Scotia. Thirteen years later, Ingram's account of what happened to himself and those travelers from Tampico to Nova Scotia was written down by Sir Francis Walsingham and published by Richard Hacklett in his book, The Principal Navigations, Voyages, and Discoveries of the English Nation of 1589. Since then, the veracity of Ingram's story has been debated by scholars across the globe. Today, our guest Dean Snow is here to share his research into Ingram and the famous walk from Mexico to Nova Scotia that defends Ingram's journey as accurate, all of which is cataloged in Dean's latest book, The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram. Today's episode topic was suggested by our patrons, Jim and Annie Garlinghouse. Thank you, Jim and Annie, for sending in this excellent idea. We hope you especially enjoy the conversation. Be sure to send our best regards to Benny the Chihuahua, Mano the Ragdoll Cat, and your two brand new kittens, Ariel and Kombucha, who I know are there listening to today's show with you as well. Dean Snow received his BA from the University of Minnesota in 1962 and his PhD from the University of Oregon in 1966. He taught at the University of Maine for three years and at the University of Almaty for 26 years, during which time he established and carried out archaeological research programs in Highland, Mexico, New England, New York, and the British Isles. He is known for his research into the paleodemography of prehistoric populations in all of these areas. 
Snow moved to the Pennsylvania State University in 1995, where he served as head of the Department of Anthropology for the following 10 years. His latest book is The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram, an Elizabethan sailor in Native North America by Oxford University Press that was published this year in 2023. You can learn more about Dean and his work, as well as find links to his book in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Dean. Thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Well, thank you for inviting me. Do we know what caused Ingram and his fellow crewmates to be marooned off the coast of Mexico in the first place? Uh, Yes, the short version is uh, that it was September 1568, and the ships got caught in a hurricane that uh, drove them to seek refuge uh, at Veracruz, which is on the coast of Mexico, on the Gulf of Mexico. The longer version is that they were slavers and that they had brought African people across the Atlantic to sell to Spanish colonists in the Caribbean here and there on the Spanish main. And they decided to to go home uh, after some successes and decided that they would do that by going up into the Gulf of Mexico and then out past the Florida Peninsula, not knowing that it was hurricane season. So uh, they got caught uh, by a huge storm and uh, driven ashore at uh, Veracruz. Uh, The flagship, uh, which was on loan from Queen Elizabeth, uh, was sunk in a battle that broke out uh, after they had been there for just a few days. And the rest of the ships were sunk as well, except for a couple of them. One got away by uh, being sailed out by the captain of that ship, who's uh, Francis Drake, a cousin of uh, John Hawkins. The minion was still afloat, and about half the English sailors, 200 of them or so, were killed or captured, but the other half ended up on the minion. So they sailed away, barely getting away, and after a few weeks, they found themselves north along the Gulf Coast of Mexico, and Hawkins realized that they couldn't all get home on the ship because it was so overloaded. So he gave the men a choice. You can go along with us back to England, take your chances of getting home, or you can go ashore and take your chances there. And when faced with this kind of a decision, Typically, it ends up being a 50-50 proposition, and indeed, what happened was about 100 men went ashore on the uh, 8th of October. And from there, many of them ended up getting killed and captured, or captured, And uh, but David Ingram and his two friends, Richard Twyde and Richard Brown, headed north thinking that they could get to a French outpost that they knew about in northern Florida, around where Jacksonville is today. And they headed in that direction with that intent. It was the only thing they could do. Hawkins had given them bolts of Rouen cloth to use as a trading stock on their way. And that indeed turned them into itinerant traders, and they made their way uh, as best they could towards Florida as the start. Is it physically possible to walk on foot from Mexico to Nova Scotia? That's close to 3,000 miles in 11 months, as David Ingram claims to have done it. Do we know if it's physically possible to take this journey or if anybody has tested that trip to see if it's possible timing-wise to make it in that amount of time? Actually, someone has. Uh, A Canadian decided to reproduce the trek, which we call the long walk. 
and did so starting in Nova Scotia and walking south towards Mexico rather than the other way around. And he did it in about the same amount of time. It turns out that through hikers, people who are really good at this and go long distances, and I talk about a few of these in, in the book, they do about 15 miles a day, about 25 kilometers. And this seems to be a sustainable rate at which people can walk for a long, long time. And many instances have occurred of people doing this. So when I reconstructed the route that Ingram must have taken, I came up with about 3,600 miles uh, or around 5,800 kilometers as the distance it would take using the trail system that existed in the eastern woodlands at that time. And this was a very complicated trail system, and it was very heavily used, oftentimes by traders. Uh, So he was plugging himself into an existing system of routes, uh, not quite the interstate highway system we have now, but adequate. And by going 15 miles a day, he could have done the whole thing in about uh, 270 days. And that would have left him with 80 some days for rest, relaxation, re-equipping, buying food, getting clothing, that sort of thing. So it was completely doable. Yet many historians who have studied this uh, case have um, found themselves suspicious that it couldn't have been done. It just didn't seem like it was a possibility. And yet it turns out that most historians are armchair people. And uh, if they uh, had the wherewithal, they could do it themselves. It wasn't that crazy. As with most monumental achievements, it's sustaining that discipline and drive that'll get you. (laughs) That's right. What specifics does Ingram give about what sorts of people he encountered during his journey? He talked a lot about the people he encountered, but he started uh, with his experiences in Africa. Uh, So he talks about African cultures and African resources, trees, animals, the things that he saw in Africa as they were collecting the people that they hauled all the way to the Caribbean. Then he talks about, talked about in his interrogation, the folks that he saw in the Caribbean and also the resources of that area. And it was only at the end of his interrogation that he talked a lot about the long walk. But that was what his interrogators were most interested in. And this was led by Francis Walsingham, who was Elizabeth's Secretary of State. There were a bunch of wealthy investors in London at the time that were trying to drum up interest in uh, colonizing the East Coast of America. And they realized they didn't know anything about the East Coast of America, uh, except the little bit that came back from ships that had touched the shore here from time to time over the preceding years. And Walsingham knew about David Ingram, this sailor who had miraculously uh, survived this long walk from Mexico to New Brunswick. And so they hauled him in probably nicely, and uh, and interrogated him before a panel of investors and other people who were interested in knowing more about Eastern North America. So that is how it played out. Uh, his descriptions were later confirmed by people that were hired by Walter Raleigh to conduct the colonizing exercise in the 1580s uh, on the uh, coast of what is now Virginia, North Carolina. This was before the devastating epidemics uh, uh, wiped out so many people here, mainly from smallpox. 
And at the time that Ingram passed through and that Raleigh first went uh, to America, things were doing just fine uh, in the eastern woodlands of America, and uh, the devastation had not yet begun. It was a long walk with very few stops. The longest they stayed in any one place was a week at a town he called, uh, Ingram called Balma. Uh, we don't know what the name of the town was, but this was he he had uh, names for various things along the way that were clouded by memory, I think. And uh, he was not a linguist, let alone literate. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. They found things that they could trade along the way. Uh, this succeeded and uh, they uh, survived quite well in the long term. Where does Ingram say that he stayed? I mean, you're mentioning Balma, that we don't necessarily know exactly where that was. But what did they use for shelter? And I mean, it was native tribes that were predominantly occupying the areas that he was traveling to. Does he he say or give any indication of who he stayed with or the kind of cultures he encountered? He does. And it's pretty clear that he was encountering major towns and smaller villages almost daily. I think he probably stayed overnight in settlements rather than in the woods someplace. He was delayed from time to time by water crossings, but it turned out that even a big waterway like the Mississippi River had dug out canoes on both sides of it. People would make canoes and then leave them there for anybody to use to take across the river. It was a kind of a a communal way of of dealing with uh, fording big streams and bays. So they were able to get across with some delay, but, you know, not with great difficulty of the major water barriers they encountered. And the rest of it was well-trod trails that uh, these uh, guys could uh, use as well as everybody else was using them at the time. And they encountered a lot of other travelers along the way. He must have picked up sign language, so he wouldn't have had trouble communicating once he picked up the sign language. And uh, that was effective throughout his entire journey. We know about sign language mainly from the Great Plains because it was still being used at that time in the 1800s when settlers started moving into that area. But it was really ubiquitous in North America at uh, the time of, of Ingram. So it's no surprise that he had a fairly easy time of it. He did not encounter violence along the way. He was warned from time to time about other people who might be violent. And, and of course, he he realized that these people were fighting amongst themselves from time to time. There were wars going on periodically, and there were some of the groups that he encountered that were particularly aggressive, but they weren't aggressive towards him. Uh, There was one occasion when early on, the leader of some local town brought him in to uh, uh, interrogate him and, uh, and his two friends, and they took all the guy's clothes off because they wanted to examine these guys more closely. They were fascinated by men with beards and light skin. They had never seen anything like this before. But it wasn't insulting. It was, you know, nudity was not a big problem for these folks. They were just curious. And, you know, they eventually let them put their clothes on and uh, spend the night and keep on going to the next town. In one of his accounts, Ingram describes a creature similar to an elephant is his description. But is he describing the American bison? 
I don't think he encountered bison. He uh, would have followed the uh, the northern shore of uh, the Gulf of Mexico uh, through the southern parts of Alabama, Mississippi. Uh, he would have had to go into the interior of Texas uh, to get far enough north to see bison. So I don't think he saw bison, but he does talk about a monstrous beast that he saw in his long walk. He also talked about buffalo that he saw in Africa. And it's very clear that they were African uh, buffalo that he saw in West Africa. But his editor put all this stuff together incorrectly later on, which made uh, a lot of historians decide that he was a liar because he was not describing things that one could expect to see in North America, elephants and leopards and that sort of thing. But the monstrous beast that he talked about was neither the African buffalo nor the American bison. It was a manatee. And he describes it in some detail very accurately, including the the little sensory hairs that they have all over their bodies and that, that sort of thing. But of course, the English interrogators had no frame of reference for anything like that. So they couldn't quite figure out what he was talking about, as they couldn't figure out a lot of things about what he was saying he had encountered, because they had no prior experience with these things. You've got to remember, it's 1568 when he sees these things, and uh, and it's you know 12 years later, uh, 1582, when he is uh, finally being interrogated, and uh, they still did not have any direct information that would allow them to look critically at what he was saying. So they misunderstood a lot. We know David Ingram's journey today because, as you say, Sir Francis Walsingham took down the account and it was subsequently published by Richard Hacklett's The Principal Navigation Voyages and Discoveries of the English Nation of 1589. They were really into gigantically long titles in the 16th century, but <laughs> I, will, yes. I will link you to this. But Dean, how did the story of Ingram's journey make it to Walsingham? I mean, you mentioned that Walsingham knew about him, but why? Why did Walsingham know about him and what made Walsingham want to publish this tale? Walsingham knew about him because he was instantly famous in London when he returned. They got back to London around about the 1st of January of 1590, having been saved by some French sailors and taken back to France and then made their way back to England. And they were instant celebrities. And John Hawkins had managed to get his ship back there, too, and was there to greet these unexpected survivors that uh, came back in what we would call the first of the year. Actually, the first of the year at that time didn't occur until March, but it was early 1590 in our calendar today. This was a, a widespread fame that didn't last for very long, I presume, because Ingram and his buddies had to go back to work. They were, after all, sailors and uh, had to make a living. Everyone knew in that community that uh, he had done this and he was uh, a kind of a celebrity. Even as his fame became a, a little less pronounced as time went on amongst the general public, the people who were in the know knew about him. And Hacklute in particular was an old buddy of Walsingham's who had worked for Walsingham when Walsingham was uh, serving as a, a spy and diplomat in Paris. Hacklute at the time was trying to compile his long-winded magnum opus. And uh, as you describe it, it, you know, it was a big deal at the time. And 
Ingram had a piece of that because Hackluth wrote it for him. Ingram was not possible to write it for himself, as many of the other people who were talked about in that huge work, uh, the, the principal navigations work at the time. So Hawkins, for example, uh, the captain that Ingram had served under, wrote his own chapter for that work, as did many of the other people. But in Ingram's case, Hackluth did it for him. He had been probably present at the interrogation. He had his own notes, and he had notes from other scribes that were present and taking things down about the interrogation, court recorders. And so he had enough material. He just didn't know how to organize it. So he ended up repackaging everything by topic. And, and that is why it became so confused. He said, all right, let's have a section on trees. And so he talked about trees that Ingram had talked about, and these included trees in Africa and the Caribbean and in North America. And the same thing happened with animals and the peoples and everything else. And then he's headed uh, this as his as Ingram's experiences on the long walk. In other words, he ignored the fact, maybe unintentionally, that a lot of this information came from Africa and the Caribbean, had nothing to do with Ingram's long walk in eastern North America. Many scholars, including Hacklett, who left out Ingram's story from his later 1599 printing of that principal navigations book, seemed to doubt Ingram's story. What about Ingram's account and subsequent publications of his story caused Hacklett and different scholars to question whether or not Ingram's account is true? If we were doubting Ingram just because Hacklett made a mashup of his account, what makes modern scholars unable to sort out those details? What, why are he still doubted today? Well, the, the biggest problem, I think, has been that scholars, including me, when I used Ingram's work back in the 1970s, used the printed version that came out in 1589 because it's easier to read. Now, it's difficult in some ways because uh, the, uh, the spellings were not consistent. Punctuation is non-existent in a lot of places. So it was, it was sloppy from the point of view of modern print technology. And it was in a Gothic typeface. But still, it's much easier to read than the three manuscript documents that have survived in archives over the years. And very few historians ever looked at those documents. But one of them, David Beers Quinn, who was the foremost British historian of the Age of Discovery, especially in eastern North America, until his death uh, a couple decades ago said at one point in a short entry he had put in a Canadian Encyclopedia of Biography, I think it's called, an entry about David Ingram. And he said, you know, everybody thinks this guy's a liar, but there might be something there. And I realized later that when I, after I'd had some correspondence with him, that he had looked at the original manuscripts, and he didn't see the clues that I found, but he thought there might be something there. And that was why I went back to it and discovered that in one of those manuscripts, Ingram makes it very clear that he was telling his whole story. And he started with Africa. And Hacklute later did a poor editing job of all this, 
not knowing that he was doing a poor editing job. And then at some point between 1589 and 99, when he was bringing out the second edition of his magnum opus, something tipped him off. Now, we don't know if he realized himself that he had misrepresented Ingram's story or if others had complained to him, uh, there's no evidence that any of the other principals that uh, we know about said anything to him about this, but something caused him to decide that he should drop this from the second edition, and he did. And then later, his literary successor, uh, Samuel Purchas, took over the publication of this magnum opus after Hackluck's death, and it was he that said, this guy can't be trusted. Uh, so he put it all on Ingram. And because most historians have never looked at the original manuscripts, they didn't tumble to it either. Uh, they didn't realize that Purchase was wrong to criticize Ingram and not Acklute. And they have basically followed his lead for 400 years. That's incredible. I have to think with Walsingham's reputation for things like rooting out espionage and spies and just the sheer paranoia that existed in Elizabethan government and what people thought about you and your opinions. There's just a broad range of reasons that might not have anything to do with Ingram or his account for for why Hacklett could have decided to distance himself from from that story. And it's it's a tantalizing right. piece of history for sure. Now, our next question was submitted by one of our patrons on Patreon here for That Shakespeare Life. Jim Garlinghouse asks... How was Ingram's story received in England? Would this tale have been popular or could it have influenced some of the stories we see in Shakespeare's plays? Well, it turns out that Shakespeare must have been mining a lot of sources for ideas for his plays. If you think about it, he uh, drew upon history quite a lot uh, that has realized that this is sort of fertile ground for uh, further research is Robert Bromberg, who's the one that has suggested that, in fact, the, the very last big entry in Ingram's published version uh, that Hackfoot edited has a codicil that is all about the island of Curacao on the Spanish main. And he suggests that it looks very much like Shakespeare read this and took advantage of what he was reading in, in, in really clever ways, it may be here nor there whether he, Shakespeare, actually believed it or not. It was still a, a good source for ideas, whether he thought Ingram was lying or making it up or just what. It really didn't matter from Shakespeare's point of view, if you think about it. So Bromerus uh, looked at uh, the codicil, or the very last entry in the Hackluid version, and realized that it's basically an outline for Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. Now, he published that in 1623. So he might have done this years after Hackluth's death. He might have even done it years after Ingham's death. We don't know when he died. But it's at least clear to one Shakespeare scholar that Ingram was a source for at least one of his plays. So that's what really brings us back to what might be of greatest interest to uh, the listeners of your podcast. This is a, a case where an historical source, as badly corrupted as it had been by but poor editing, served as a source for Shakespeare in developing his own ideas and uh, creative output. 
it would be in line with Shakespeare's M.O., I guess, because he throughout his works, he has his finger on just the pulse of the most current of current events going on in and around his life. And as you mentioned about David Ingram, they made quite a splash when they got back. They were this instant famous of these guys weren't supposed to live, but they did. Oh, and he has this amazing story about this journey that seems impossible. I can't imagine if that was happening in London that Shakespeare wouldn't have been one to to know about it. So it's That's it's right. pretty exciting to think that he would have would have included there that. There's a character in The Tempest whose name is Caliban, and most Shakespeare scholars think that this is an anagram for cannibal. And they're probably right. And if you look, if you read through uh, Ingram's interrogation, you realize that Elizabethans were fascinated with the idea of cannibalism. It comes up over and over again, both for Africa and for North America. It's something that the interrogators wanted to know about, and Ingram was happy to talk about. Uh, a lot of it was uh, made up out of uh, fear. It's not certain that there were very many cannibals on, in either of those continents, but Ingram talked about them. And he would always say, well, you know, the people that I visited here were not cannibals, but they talked about cannibals who were elsewhere. And so we had avoided going in that direction. You know, those kinds of comments were made. There is a, an interesting connection there. Well, I know we are excited to explore this topic further. And as the topic expert who has done a massive amount of research for your book, I think you're the best person to ask for some recommendations on books or resources we should use or that we should start with if we want to dive into the story of David Ingram and his history and connections with Shakespeare further. Where should we begin? Romer's article is a place that really connects Ingram to Shakespeare, and so I would recommend that. I think you can post that for people to look at. There are also a number of really good books out right now. The biographies of Walter Raleigh, of John Hawkins, even books about uh, Francis Drake would be uh, uh, of use to people to understand the context of the time. There are people who Raleigh later hired that I've mentioned that really uh, verified what Ingram had seen earlier as well. And uh, some of the books about those individuals, Thomas Harriot, for example, might be useful. John White, the artist, is involved in all of this in the 1580s. Those are all good sources for people to look at and I think you'd find fascinating. We will link to all of these resources in the show notes for today's episode, along with a couple of articles that Dean recommends for you. You can go to the show notes for today's episode, so stay tuned after the interview to find the link for where to get those. Dean, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. That's a tough one. I think it would have to be a pretty large, thick book because I don't know how long I'm going to be on that island. But I think of these, I found uh, the Francis Drake one to be of particular interest. If I could choose the island, uh, that would certainly make it my first choice. The interest in Drake is that he survived the battle at San Juan de Lua uh, in 1568 and became very famous in his own right later, made the around-the-world uh, trip later uh, in the next decade. Ingram was with him initially in that adventure and uh, only got separated at the uh, Strait of Magellan in uh, southern South America. And the ship that Ingram was on turned back 
and uh, went back to England while Drake continued his around-the-world voyage. Each of those ships thought the other had gone down, and uh, the guy that was the captain of the Elizabeth sailed back home thinking Drake had been lost. So it, it may be that uh, if they their luck had gone the other way, We'd know nothing at all about David Ingram because he would not have survived as his buddy Richard Brown did not survive on that voyage. He was killed on the same ship in an accident. As luck would have it, these guys uh, did survive uh, for a while, and uh, certainly Ingram did. We know his story as a result. I think that's an excellent choice for your deserted island for sure. And you'll be the first guest I've had who wanted to select their deserted island, but I think we'll give you that one. (laughs) So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, there are uh, problems in archaeology that continue to be of interest, uh, things having to do with uh, current nominations to the World Heritage Sites and uh, a basic problem in archaeology having to do with taxonomy. I think I'll turn my attention to these kinds of problems now to keep me busy going forward. Those sound like exciting projects, and if they are anything like your work into the story of David Ingram, I know we'll look forward to seeing what comes from those. Thank you so much, Dean Snow, for being here and sharing with us the just fascinating history of David Ingram. I had no idea his life intersected with so many of the famous celebrities we think of from the 16th and 17th century, and certainly we're excited to explore his life more because of what you shared with us today. Thank you so much for being here. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you are listening from today. We have special history extras available for you in the show notes for today's episode, along with the resources that Dean Snow mentions about the articles and the books about the David Ingram's walk, as well as Hacklett and Walsingham and Raleigh that we mentioned in today's talk. You can also find some visual elements like a map of David Ingram's walk so you can see exactly the path he took from Mexico to Nova Scotia. That's been donated to listeners for that Shakespeare life by Dean Snow. It is his original artwork based on his research into Ingram's life. You can see that and other history tidbits all packed into the show notes for today's episode. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash EP two five three. That's CassidyCash.com slash episode 253. That Shakespeare Life is funded the same way William Shakespeare funded his work during his lifetime, with the support of patrons. Listeners just like you power the work we do here to research and produce our show every week. To say thank you for your support, patrons get access to our entire back catalog of shows. That's over 100 additional episodes not included on public listening platforms. Plus, patrons get behind-the-scenes extras, including sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions you want asked during the interview, as well as bonus history print content that coordinates with the show and with Shakespeare's plays. Join us as a patron today and unlock all the great bonuses at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.